Acts chapter 23. As we're picking up here, to recap what's happened, Paul has made his way to Jerusalem, gets to Jerusalem. He is asked by James and some of the other Jews to help calm the spirit of those who have heard about Paul. They had heard that Paul was, you know, going out to the Gentiles. They had made up stories about him saying that Paul is saying that, you know, they're to forsake, you know, their traditions, their Jewish ways, that, that Jewish children aren't to be circumcised. And they're making up stories about him. And Paul, they say, you need to do something to help ease the, the just attitude towards, these, towards you with these people. And so they said there's four young men. They've taken the vow of a Nazarite. They, they're going to be shaving their heads and ceremonially fulfilling their vows why don't you pay for that? Go with them to the temple. That way everyone can see, oh, Paul is still, in a sense, one of us. He's still following some of these traditions. Paul goes along with that, and it doesn't help. They see these four guys, and they say, he's brought Gentiles into the temple, and it causes an uproar. The people don't even know what they're uproaring about, but all of a sudden there's a riot on their hands. They're trying to kill Paul. The centurion who's in charge of that region sees the commotion going on, so he sends some troops down there. They pull Paul out of this, rescue him, and then Paul gets into the barracks and he says, hey, let me talk to them. He convinces the centurion to allow him to speak to the people as he sees that he speaks Greek and he's not some rebel. He says, sure, go ahead. So Paul addresses them. We talked about that last week in his message, how he gave his testimony to them. And once he mentions the word Gentiles, they freak out. They go ballistic and they're tearing their clothes. So they pull the guy in or pull Paul back in and he's going to beat him to find out what did you say to start this commotion? And Paul appeals to him and says, is it legal to beat a Roman? And the guy freaks out. He goes, oh, I didn't know he was a Roman. So he tells his commander, he's a Roman. Be careful what you do with him. And he goes, is that true? He goes, yes, I, I'm a Roman. I, I'm from no small town. I'm from Tarsus. And he finally says, okay, well, here, here's what we're going to do. To find out what's going on, I'm going to call a meeting together with the Sanhedrin. This is the Jewish Supreme Council. And we're going to get to the bottom of this. What's going on? And that's where we're picking up here in chapter 23. In chapter 23... Starting at verse 1, it says, Paul looks straight at the Sanhedrin. Okay, now picture this. There's 70 people that make up the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Council. These are the ones who make the decisions for the people of what they're going to do concerning their ceremonial traditions and how they're going to follow along with them. He looks straight at the Sanhedrin and he said, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. At this, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. Way to go, Paul. You know, here we go. Going to ease, ease things in. Paul goes before this council. And he appeals to them. And one of the things that's interesting is he appeals to them as my brothers. We're going to see that Paul was a Pharisee. He knew these people because he was among them, among the high council at one time. 
And so he knows these people. We saw earlier when he addressed the whole nation, it was brothers and fathers. And, and he dealt with them kind of in a generic, now it's my brothers. He, he's dealing with them, hey, you guys, I'm like you. I'm one of you. And we see that he, he appeals to them, or, or doesn't actually, as he talks to them and he says, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. Now, what about that would cause someone to smack you in the mouth? What did he say that was so wrong that would cause Ananias to smack him in the mouth? Well, first of all, Ananias does not historically bode well. He was not a good guy. He was later assassinated. But Josephus writes about Ananias that he was a glutton. He says that he was a tyrant, a bigot, and a murderer. That was Josephus' historian talking about Ananias. We know that he was a thief, that he robbed from the other priests. He was responsible for causing the temple to take in the animals. Remember we saw Jesus when he cast out the court? Well, that was kind of Ananias' deal where he would make profit off of people coming in to the temple to offer to God. He would take, no, that offering isn't good enough. You need to use ours. And he would add on to the cost. So he had a good deal going monetarily, but he was not someone who was respected. So that's who Paul is talking to, who is in charge of this. So he's got one strike against him already. But the other thing is, if Paul actually fulfilled his duty to God in good conscience, then what Paul stands for is right and what he stands for is wrong. And that causes a problem. If you're standing there in good conscience, that means that I'm already in the wrong. And so Ananias isn't going to stand for that. Maybe he's just trying to assert his power to make himself known, and so he has Paul struck. You guys ever know someone who is just, power had gone to their heads? Maybe you worked for someone like that? Any of you guys, can you relate to that? Someone who, who <laughs> where it doesn't matter, this person is just, they have the authority and they flaunt it. And they act like they're king of the world. You know, they act like they've got it all together, that they're the ones who are in charge and they use that power in a ways that aren't, you know, aren't kosher. Just that's not the way you should be. Well, that's how it was here with this guy. He has the power. He wants to make himself known. Have you ever been in a situation where if what you say is true, then it puts someone else in a, a false light? In other words, if I'm telling the truth, that means you're wrong. You're lying. There was a time when I was working and I was a foreman at a, a fabrication shop for fire sprinklers and I was in charge of running this shop and making sure all the material was put together that would go out to the jobs. And the boss had hired his nephew to be a part of the shop. And his nephew was a partier he wasn't much of a worker. He, he wanted to get away with as much as he could and do as little as possible. And so he'd come in late. We'd find him asleep, you know, and then all these kinds of things. And I, I got fed up with him. I was just like, 
you know, this guy's costing me time and headache. And so I was telling his uncle, hey, I'm done with this guy. You know, I don't want to put up with this guy anymore. He, he's wasting my time. He's, he's costing you money. It's just not good. Well, so he calls us both in there, me and his nephew. And his nephew is a pretty big guy, you know. He's not the kind of guy I'd want to say these things to his face. And so the nephew comes in there, and he's probably about 26 years old or so, 25. And he comes in there, and we both sit down across from the boss. And the boss says, okay, so what's going on? And he asks his nephew, you know, what's going on? And all of a sudden, his nephew says, you know, Teal, it's like this. And I'm like, Teal? You know, and he starts laying on the tears and he starts, you know, I'm trying to work hard for you, Teal, man. I'm doing all I can. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, you know. And I, I finally, it's like, after he gave his little spiel, in fact, in the middle of his spiel, he was laying on so thick, I stood up and I just said, you know what? I'm out of here. I go, if you want to believe that, you go ahead, but I'm going to go back to work. You decide, because if what he says is right, then everything that I've been telling you doesn't make any sense. You decide. And I walked out, because I was furious. I just, it, like, Tio, it just bugs me to this day, you know, the way he said it. Oh, Tio, and he's almost going to cry. And it's like, this guy's the biggest partier there is, you know. And it's one of those things where if what you're saying is right, then it means I'm wrong. And Paul says, in good conscience, I fulfilled my duty to God. Well, if that's true, Paul, then your conversion is a slap in my face. And so I'm going to get the up on you. He has him struck, the high priest. Now, Paul's reaction, it's an interesting response because Paul blasts the guy, basically. He goes, God is going to smite you, you whitewashed wall. A whitewashed wall was basically tombs that they would have. They would paint them white so that people could see that there was a grave there. Because ceremonially, if you touched a grave, you were considered unclean. Remember, Jesus called the Pharisees, you whitewashed walls, you whitewashed tombs full of dead man's bones. Outward, you look all clean, but inside, you're corrupt. And it's basically the same thing, you whitewashed wall. God is going to strike you because inside, you're messed up. You tell him to smite me, you try to defend the law, and you break the law. And he's quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 25 when he talks about that breaking the law. Because he was required due process before he was to be smitten. And then it was to be on the back, not in the mouth. And so Paul says, you don't know what you're talking about. You, you know, smite me. And can anyone relate to that? I mean, part of me, when I read this, says, yeah, you know, you tell him, Paul, woo, you know, I'm with you. We just have, at least I just have this sense of justice, you know, that's the way to go. That's the way we want to see it take place. But, you know, before we, we go too far, because as Paul talks about this, then they're standing around him, said, do you dare insult God's high priests? Verse four, Paul replied, brothers, I did not realize that he was the high priest, for it is written, do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. Now, there are a few thoughts regarding how Paul responded. 
And I tend to lean towards the fact that Paul did not realize that this person was the high priest. Remember, this council was called together by the Roman guard kind of quickly. He was probably not dressed in his robe. It was probably not where they usually meet, so he was seated in the proper place. So when he had him smitten, Paul just thought, who are you? Who do you think you are? And Paul responded and probably did not realize that indeed he was the high priest. And then he repents of it. Basically, he says, you know, I recognize because Exodus twenty two twenty eight says that you're not to put that charge against the ruler of God's people. And so I believe that Paul sincerely said, I didn't know. Hey, I didn't know. If I would have known, I wouldn't have responded that way. It doesn't make what he said not true. He just responded in the wrong way. Turn with me to John chapter 18. Turn back to John chapter 18. We're going to start at verse 19. John 18, verse 19, it says, Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and teaching. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. Then Jesus said this. One of the officials nearby struck him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest? He demanded. Boy, similar, right? Now let's see how Jesus responded to the same situation. Jesus says, if I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Then Annas sent him, still bound, to Caiaphas, the high priest. Jesus responded differently than Paul. Instead of striking back, Jesus answered with a question. Challenging what he did because it was wrong, but not the way Paul did. Which way are you guys more inclined to react? <laughs> yeah, I, I'm more like Paul. I, I would be more, boom. I would, who do you think, you know, you know, get that attitude. That, that's my natural tendency, personally. Between these two, who should we act? Yeah, right. You're supposed to say Jesus, you know. It's like, what's gray and furry and climbs a tree? Uh, Jesus, you know, that's the old Sunday school answer. Just say Jesus, you're bound to be right, you know. If it's between something and Jesus, you can go for Jesus, you know. It's, you're supposed to be like Jesus. That's who we're trying to be like. And Jesus' response is so wonderful because... He basically says, if I've done something wrong, what is it? If not, why are you striking me? And notice there is no response. There is no response to what he said. Paul, on his defense, though, was not too proud to say, I was wrong. Which is another difficult thing, isn't it? To say you're wrong to someone who has done you wrong. Back to the fabrication shop. The same guy, the nephew, 
went to a job that we had to have him deliver some things on. And he had a hard time finding, it was downtown Los Angeles, they didn't have a place to park. And he came back and it was late. And I assumed from my knowledge of him that he probably went to a bar somewhere between dropping off the material and getting back to the shop because that's happened before many times. And so that's my thinking. And he comes back and I let into him, you know, takes you three hours to go drop off this material. You know, I could get, you know, this other guy who's, you know, the nephew of, you know, the younger nephew, basically, you know, the little squirt kid. I could get him to do it in half the time. It took you three times to do that. And he started telling me, well, hey, you know, we had this problem with the parking and blah, blah, blah. And I, you know, save it. Save it. I don't want to hear about it. I, I'm tired of this. Okay. And so I just kind of blew the guy off. And then the other guy came back who worked on the job and goes, yeah, they had a hard time parking. You know, it was like this. And it was like, oh, oh, you know what? I don't need to apologize to that guy. How many times has he done that wrong? Oh, I do need to apologize. And I did have to tell him, hey, man, I'm sorry. I was out of line. I was wrong. You know, I apologize. I don't know. I don't know if it mattered to him or not, but... It's hard to do, to say you're sorry to someone who has wronged you in the past when you're wrong. Here the high priest had him smitten. It was wrong. You're not supposed to deal with me that way. But Paul was not so proud that he couldn't say, I didn't know. You know what? You're right. I'm not supposed to talk about God's chosen like that. In fact, Romans tells us, Romans 13, 1 to 7 tells us that we're subject to the governing authorities, that we're to have respect over those, to those who are over us. We're supposed to. And Paul wrote that about the Roman government, who was not very moral, who was definitely not what we would consider, you know, godly, but was in fact heathen, pagan. And so God, God, Paul tells us that God is in control over those who are over us, including the Roman government. How much more does that mean for us and the people who are over us, whether it's in the United States or whether it's China? We're to have respect for those who are over us so that we don't come across as, yeah, we're out here you know, to cause insurrection, we're anarchists, we're going to you know, take over... That's not supposed to be the spirit that we do things in. And so Paul said, you're right, I was wrong. And we need to maintain that attitude of authority over us and be humble. You guys, it is so difficult to humble ourselves. But it is the mark of Christ. Can you guys identify with that? Have you ever had to deal with situations that are just hard to humble yourself? A story maybe where you've had to go to someone who in your mind was wrong how they did things but still you need to humble yourself to that person and bring peace to the situation Paul did not say you were right I was wrong but he says I was wrong in how I reacted and that that's an important distinction because he's not saying you were right I'm wrong you're the high priest whatever you do is right no that's not what he says he says, I shouldn't have responded that way. Doesn't mean what they did was right. 
It just means what I did was not right. And I acknowledge it. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have responded that way. And once again, we see Paul is very, he's well handling the scriptures. He knows them very well. He knows where he was wrong. He knows where I was wrong. Okay. And we see now the scriptures are governing what Paul's doing. It governed his reaction to what he did as far as being wrong, but then it governed his own reaction to how he responded. And boy, if we could be so controlled like that, that the scriptures control the things and how we respond. Oh, wait, no, I shouldn't do that because the scriptures want me to live at peace with all men. So I shouldn't respond that way. You know, and have the scriptures control us in the things that we do. Boy, that, that's what we want. That's why we're here. That's why we're looking at the scriptures, so we can learn from these things. Even as Paul went through these things, that's what we need to do, is, is gain this insight from them. Go back to Acts. Verse 6. Now, okay, let's put yourself here. You, you get in front of the council, you, you say one sentence, you get popped in the mouth, you find out the guy who had you popped in the mouth is in charge. I need to be respectful for those who are in charge. What do you do? Because this is a no-win situation. It really is. The guy who's in charge of this just had me popped in the mouth. I have to be respectful to that guy. And he's the one who's controlling matters here. So Paul is taking all this in. And then Paul, knowing, that word knowing is observing, that he was able to gain information from what he saw, that some of them were Sadducees and others were Pharisees. He called out in the Sanhedrin, My brothers, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. I stand on trial because of my hope in the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. The Sadducees say that there is no resurrection and that there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Boy, talk about way to respond, Paul. I mean, I just think of the things that Jesus has said just about how we are to be wise as serpents, harmless as doves. In Ephesians 5.15, Paul says, Be very careful then how you live as not unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Paul made the most of this opportunity because what he did is went and addressed what they were both directly in conflict of. And so now what he's doing is instead of them focusing on him, they're focusing on their own conflict. I love the wisdom and to think of this at the spur of the moment is just, it's like Jesus, it really is. It's the kind of thing that Jesus would do as far as asking questions and making the conflict between what they are saying and what they really believe. And so Paul sees that there's a conflict. Some of them are Sadducees. The Sadducees are the liberals. They're the Democrats, you know. Then you've got the Pharisees that are more the conservatives. They're the Republicans. And he goes right at the middle of what's going to be divisive in their agreement. And he goes, I am here for the hope and the resurrection. Well, we can't 
blast this guy if you're a Pharisee. He believes like we do. Those Sadducees, they're against this. We need to make sure that they don't get their way with this guy. You ever see some of the Supreme Court justice nominations when you, you've got someone who gets presented who one of the parties is you know, vehemently against? Remember the Clarence Thomas trials and all these things? It's like, oh my gosh. You know, is it true that when you were in third grade, you know, that you said this to your teacher? You know, it's like, oh my gosh, where did this come from? They just nitpick these things and try and find everything to bring accusation against this person. Well, that's what Paul does. He brings up this controversy so that they will battle each other because he's in a no-win situation. The guy who's in charge of this whole council just had me popped in the mouth and I've got to be subject to him. What am I going to say? I tried to make a defense out there. They tried to kill me. And now I'm here before the council. The one who's in charge had me punched. And what do I do? What do I do? I'm here in hope of the resurrection knowing that that's going to cause a conflict. Sure enough, it does. <laughs> Verse 9. There was a great uproar. That word great, it means great. And some of the teachers of the law who were Pharisees stood up and argued vigorously. We find nothing wrong with this man. Paul's going, yes. They said, what if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? The dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. Now this commander, boy, he's got to be at his wit's end with this guy. I save you from getting killed. I allow you to speak. You start this commotion again, and I put you in front of this council, and here it happens again. What's with you? And I can't beat you because you're a Roman. What am I going to do with you? He's got to be at his wit's end with his Paul. It's like, oh my gosh, it's his own council. And they've got to, you know, everything this guy says causes some kind of commotion. You know, Christ said, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. I will cause division between mother and daughter and son and father and brothers and sisters. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Now, what, what, what does that mean? The things that I have to say are going to be so important and so challenging to a person's life that you are either for me or you are against me. And Paul is there making these statements in, in ways that it just caused people, especially those who had religious power, to feel uncomfortable. And as he challenges them in this way and he brings up this that they're debating against, again, the commander has to pull him out of there and just think, oh gosh, what am I going to do with this guy? Well, we're going to see what he does in a little bit. But Paul gets brought back into the barracks. Now, before we read the next verse, let, let's try and get into Paul's mind because the next verse tells us what his mind is going to be or gives us insight into it. You've gone and, and spoke before the people. They've tried to kill you. you. You tried to please the people. They've tried to kill you. You've gone to the Supreme Council. They're trying to kill you. The government governor wanted to, the Roman centurion commander 
wanted to beat you, but he withheld because he found out you're a Roman. You're basically in this barracks, and everyone on the outside is trying to kill you. What are you going to do? Where are you going to go? What do you think Paul's prayers are that night when he's in the barracks? Put yourself in that situation. Ever been in a situation where you're at, you know, odds with someone or there's something big looming over you? You know, I mean, just as, you know, we've been praying for Alex and his whole situation with the job. I know that was weighing on his mind, you know. Goes to bed at night thinking about that. You wake up in the morning, you're thinking about it, you know. You lift it to the Lord. Well, imagine Paul's situation. Yeah, the whole city outside is trying to kill me. The Supreme Council is trying to kill me. The Roman governor doesn't like me. Or the commander, soldier, he doesn't like me. Oh, man. And then the following night, the Lord stood near Paul. I just love the way that sounds. The Lord stood near Paul. Do you guys have a realization that the Lord stands near you? That he's near you? It says, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify in Rome. Take courage. How many times has God told people to take courage or not be afraid? How many times? He, he told that to Abram before he became Abraham. Told that to Abraham after he became Abraham. Told it to Isaac. He told it to Jacob. He told it to Moses. He told it to Joshua in Joshua 1 verses 6 through 9. He tells it to him like four times in that short period of times. You know, take courage and do not be afraid. Be strong of courage. Again, I'm telling you, be of good courage and do not be afraid. Why did he tell him that? Because he was afraid. That's why Paul was being told this. Because God knew, I know you're afraid. Take courage. Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, you must now also testify in Rome. Take courage. Wherever you are at, in whatever circumstances you find yourself facing, do you realize that the Lord is with you and that he is telling you to take courage? Jesus said in Matthew 28, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He said, you believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house, there are many mansions, and I go to prepare a place for you, that where I am, there you may be also. And if I go to prepare a place, I will come again and receive you to myself. In this world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. Take courage. I have overcome this world. Do you realize that the Lord is near us saying, take courage. Wherever you're at, whatever you're going through, take courage. I am with you. I have overcome. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Take courage. What hope that should bring to us. That just as the Lord stood near Paul and told him this, he's standing near us and telling us the same thing. Take courage. 
And what's interesting is then he says, as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, you must also testify in Rome. If I was Paul, I'd be thinking, how did I do in Jerusalem anyway? I don't think it was that good of a testimony. I was hoping to do better in Rome, you know, than I did here. I caused a riot and trying to kill me. But, you know, Paul never saw the effect of his ministry. Not like we have. We're able to look back and say, wow, Paul changed Europe. He changed that whole region. Paul did not know the impact he would have. But God knew. And we know now, looking back, do you know you have no idea what impact you're going to have? There's a story of this German teacher, and his third grade students would come in, and each one of his students, he would stand there and he would click his heels together in that German fashion and give a little bow of respect to them as they'd come walking in. And when they was asked, why do you do that to your third grade students? He said, well, I don't know which one of these students will amount to something and become someone important. And so I'm giving them the respect now just in case they become that. And we knew that story because one of his third grade students was Albert Einstein. And he told about his teacher who used to bow to him. Had no idea that in his class was going to be this man who was incredibly, you know, a genius. We have no idea what God is doing in our lives and through our lives. And as he testified there in Jerusalem, you're going to testify to me in Rome. Paul, be of good courage. I'm not done with you. You're going to continue. And we see in this that he gave him consolation to be of good cheer, gave him a commendation as you've testified in Jerusalem, and gave him a confirmation that so must you testify in Rome. And what I love about this is back in Acts 19.21, Paul just, we have this little sentence that said, I must go to Rome. That's all it said. Paul said, I must, I must needs go to Rome. We don't know why he said that, but he said, I need to go to Rome. And God says, you're going to go to Rome. Paul had the desire to go to Rome. Why? Maybe because Rome was the epicenter of the known world back then. If I can change Rome, we'll change the world. And you know what? He did. Change the known world. And it started with a desire to do something. And God said, I see that desire. I'll fulfill that in your life, Paul. You want to go to the room? I'll get you there. All expenses paid. It's going to be through the prison system, but I'll get you there. Sometimes God takes us, and it's not the way we want to go, but he's, he's in control. He's at work. And he gave Paul consolation, he gave him a commendation, and he's giving him confirmation. I will get you to Rome. Don't worry. And the realization of this, what it must have done for Paul to know and recognize that the Lord is with me. He hasn't left me, and he's going to get me to where I need to go. And we're going to see how God does that. In verse 12, it says, The next morning, the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath 
not to eat drink or drink until they had killed Paul. Well, it doesn't look good so far. This isn't going the way you know you would think it's planned. More than 40 men were involved in this plot. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, we have taken a solemn oath not to eat anything until we have killed Paul. Now then, you and the Sanhedrin petition the commander to bring him before you on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about his case. We are ready to kill him before he gets here. So there's the conspiracy. They're plotting to get Paul. They're plotting to get him. In verse 16 it says, But the son of Paul's sister heard of this plot. He went into the barracks and told Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the commander. He has something to tell him. So he took him to the commander. The centurion said, Paul, the prisoner, sent for me and asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. The commander took the young man by the hand, drew him aside and asked, What is it you want to tell me? He said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul before the Sanhedrin tomorrow on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about him. Don't give in to them, because more than 40 of them are waiting in ambush for him. They have taken an oath not to eat or drink until they have killed him. They are ready now, watching for your consent, waiting for your consent to their request. The commander dismissed the young man and cautioned him, don't tell anyone that you have reported this to me. So we hear the conspiracy. Now, remember, Paul has just been told by the Lord, take courage. I'm going to get you to Rome. All of a sudden, Paul's nephew comes there and says, hey, I overheard these guys saying they're going to kill you. There's 40 of them. They're plotting. They're, they're not going to eat. They're not going to drink. They're not going to do this until you're dead. Paul says, wow. You know, what a coincidence that you would happen to find out about this. You know, coincidence, chance per chance, just happened that my nephew would be able to get this information. So many times God works in ways that seem very natural. Nephew just happened to hear that story, be able to go and talk to the commander. I think of in First Kings where Elijah was waiting to hear from God and God spoke to him, but it wasn't in the strong wind. It wasn't in the earthquake. It wasn't in the fire. It was in a still, small voice. So many times we want God to speak to us profoundly. God, speak to me. Let, let it be audible. Let the earth shake. Let it be miraculous. Let it be a flash of light. Do something miraculous. And then there's a still, small voice of someone just saying, hey, what do you think about this? Or a nephew coming in saying, you know, I heard this. And it's God's intervention saying, don't worry, I'm with you. I'm going to get you to Rome. What are the odds that his nephew would get wind of this information? And so he tells the commander. The commander says, don't tell anyone okay, that you told me. And watch what happens because this is, this is great. I love this part. And, and think about these 40 guys who made this vow. Think of how, how stern they are. We're just make a vow. I will not eat or drink until he is dead. Okay. 
Then in verse 23, then he called two of his centurions. Remember, centurions over a hundred. Then ordered them, get ready, a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at nine tonight, provide mounts for Paul. I mean, he probably has a horse or at least a donkey so that he may be taken safely to the governor Felix. And then he wrote a letter and we'll read the letter. Okay, so you're going to have 400 men plus 70 horsemen escort Paul to, and here you got 40 guys. What are they? They're ready for Paul. They're watching. And open the gates. Okay, get ready, guys. Oh, 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 no. There's 400 Roman soldiers and 70 on horse, and there's Paul in the middle of them. We've taken a vow <laughs> not to eat. It makes you just wonder. Their hearts must have sank. But, you know, it, it reminds me of, of the Lord saying, I'm able to do above and beyond what you were able to ask or think. Paul, don't worry. Take courage. I'm going to get you to Rome. How am I going to get you? We'll start out with 400 soldiers, 70 horsemen. How's that? And I'll put you on a horse, too. I'll give you an escort out of the city like you wouldn't believe. Don't worry. I've got you covered more than adequately to make sure that what I told you is going to happen. And so here, here we just, I just imagine what happened because we never hear about these 40 guys again. You wonder which one broke first, you know. They're probably sneaking food, you know. <laughs> you kept your vow. Oh, yes, I'm still waiting, you know. It's like, well, it looks like you're gaining a few pounds there. Let's go. Then he wrote a letter as follows. Claudius Lysias, to the excellent governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and they were about to kill him, but I came with my troops and rescued him. You guys remember how this happened. It wasn't quite this way. For I had learned that he is a Roman citizen. I wanted to know why they were accusing him, so I brought him to their Sanhedrin. I found that the accusations had to do with questions about their law, but there was no charge against him that deserved death or imprisonment. When I was informed of a plot to be carried out against the man, I sent him to you at once. I also ordered his accusers to present to you their case against him. So the soldiers, carrying out their orders, took Paul with them during the night and brought him as far as Antipatris. The next day, they let the cavalry go on with him while they returned to the barracks. When the cavalry arrived at Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor and handed Paul over to him. The governor read the letter and asked, What province was he from? Learning that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear your case when your accusers get here. Then he ordered that Paul be kept under guard in Herod's palace. Not bad, not bad. That's better than a dungeon in Herod's palace. He's got a nice place to stay. He had a nice armed escort get him there. God indeed was with Paul. And now we're going to find out more about Felix next time because Felix was an interesting character. He is quite a cat. <laughs> he, he was a catty fellow. Uh, he actually was the only governor that we know of who was at one time a slave. And it was said of Felix that he 
thought himself and conducted himself as a king, but had the attitude of a slave. In other words, he had a, a chip on his shoulder. He was pretty, uh, a pretty vicious guy. And so Paul gets presented over there, but we see through all of this that God is with him. And I, I pray you underline that one verse that it says that the Lord stood near. And you would take that to heart with you and wherever you're at, that the Lord is near you, that he hasn't left you, hasn't departed you, that he's with you. And he is going to fulfill his purposes in your life. Paul wanted to go to Rome. Paul said, I'll get, and God said, I'll get you there. Where do you want to go? What do you want to do? What do you want to see accomplished in your life? What things for God do you want to do? Because God gave Paul a vision that was bigger than his ability, and God's fulfilling it in him. And I believe God wants to do that in all of us. He wants to give us the desires of our heart. But the first part of that proverb says to delight, or that psalm says, to delight yourself in the Lord. If you delight yourself in the Lord, then he will give you the desires of your heart. What is your delight in the Lord? What do you desire God to do in your life and through your life? Because maybe like Paul, he says, I'll get you there. It might not be the way you thought. God's ways are not our ways. But he wants to do powerful things in our lives. And we limit him so many times because of fear, because I can't do that, I'm not good enough. I, I, I'm not even able to be a testimony in Jerusalem. Oh, Paul was, God said so. Just as you've testified about me in Jerusalem, I'm gonna send you to Rome. Don't minimize what God wants to do and is doing through you. He wants to do more still, and let's allow him to do that. Let's pray. Lord, I just love this journey we're on, even with Paul at this point, and, and seeing his zeal for you, and even seeing his weakness and the wisdom that you gave him. And Lord, we, we see ourselves in so many similar situations and similar emotions. Father, maybe not quite as powerful as Paul, but desiring to be a, an example of you, yet being afraid, wanting to make an impact, but having confrontation. Lord, Lord, we can identify with these things, but in all these things, you stood near him. And God, we recognize that you are near us, that you are with us, that you will not leave us, that you will not forsake us that indeed your spirit dwells within us. Lord, might we impact the community around us, our friends, Father, those people we, we work with, help us to have an impact on them, Lord, that we might honor you where we're at. And God, I pray that we would not limit you in our lives. Father, that I believe there's things that you put in each of us. God, that you've, you've put that there for a purpose, that you've, you've planted a seed in each one of our lives, in our hearts, that is to grow and that is to produce for you. 
And Lord, I think we minimize that so many times because we think we can never do something like that. And we read these things about Paul and we think, oh man, wow, what a, an amazing man. But God, he was like us, a man. And he lived for you in a way that produced these things within him. God, may we be the same. Father, may we pursue those things that you've put in our heart. May we not let them go unfulfilled. Allow you to fulfill those things in us and, and deal with our areas of fear, God. Help us not to let fear control us, to squash those things from ever becoming fruitful in our lives. I pray that you would have your way with us, Lord. We do pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.